Hey everyone, welcome back to There Goes My Brain Again and part two of the audiobook for Maple Dorm Trinket, Supposedly Dreams and Rainbows. I hope you got a kick out of part one and that your aggressive leg action will continue. Uh, I don't know, uh, sometimes I, I think I read well enough, sometimes I even think my voice sounds okay, but also sometimes I feel like I'm reading the story to a classroom, and maybe hearing the pages turn is what will give it the authenticity of nostalgia. In any case, this is what I sound like when I read. Uh, the trickiest part for this section was trying to do Miss Mississippi's voice without seeming to be trying to do her voice. Uh, the second trickiest part was trying to pronounce the alphabet as one word, as you'll hear. I appreciate you very much for listening, and I'm curious to hear any feedback you have. This second episode will be chapters 3, 4, and 5, Petite Larceny, Mississippi, and The Lap Magician. So, without further delay, let's begin. Chapter 3. Petite Larceny. Comfort is the Enemy of Progress. P.T. Barnum. Black Thursday, 1929, Washington Square Park, Manhattan. The lollipop was in between two schoolchildren. They had been arguing over who was going to enjoy the sugared dream of sticky salivation. They had a quick game of tug-of-war, and the lollipop landed on the battlefield. While they continued their spat over whose spit would be artificially pinkened, Maple Dorm took cover in a drain that clung to a skyscraper like a great white beanstalk. He covered his own magic beans, keenly aware of his nakedness now, and because they were children. There had been a sun shower not too long ago, and some of the water had yet to find its way to the ground from the rooftop. He saw the two sets of legs hop backward and forward, the result of their shoving each other. When there was an opportunity, Maple Dorham, acting like the vermin he'd soon live amongst, sprinted out from the drain, grabbed the candy stick, and retreated to the damp safety of a trickling urban waterfall. The schoolchildren were shocked to see that they were now fighting over nothing. They walked away, deprived of their afternoon jolt of joy. Maple Dorham was armed and ready for the fight before him. Beginning a life of petty larceny, or in this case, petite larceny, was never his plan but it seemed that life's circumstances put him in this tight spot, which he hoped would eventually land him in the tight pockets and unzipped pocketbooks of the members of high society. After the sun disappeared between the canyons of capitalism, on the same day the stock market supernova exploded, bringing the darkness of night to the break of pay, Maple Dorm scaled the wall of an apartment building, looking for points of entry. Other unfortunate souls were taking the opposite route, falling in the same direction of the charts, and bursting bubbles they became. Mabel Dorham struck gold when he happened upon a couple who were getting ready to spend a night out on the town. The only thing they never invested in was each other. He had heard them tell their daughter that she'd be staying with her neighboring friend across the hall. Once their living room lights dimmed, Mabel Dorham's face lit up. He found his way to their bathroom and scaled the side of their clawfoot bathtub. There was still a puddle of soapy water at the bottom. He bathed splashed around and pretended to be Babe Ruth sliding into home. He felt like a new man. Getting out of the tub wasn't easy. 
The suds on his body and the sleek porcelain tub were a slippery duo. Eventually, Mapledorm dried himself off and got to work. He found some loose change, but he told himself he would only resort to stealing coins if he were desperate. Climbing down the side of a building while holding the equivalent of a set of car tires would be less than ideal. Paper money was really the only way to go. Mapledorm looked in some obvious places, but came up empty. Then, under the couple's bed, he found a small metal box. He reached into the keyhole and manipulated the gears with surgical acumen. He pried it open and kept it ajar with his lollipop stick. Mapledorm thought he found God, but really, he found $82. On Black Friday, even God knew better than to hide it in a safe. It was nearly a month's salary. He rolled the bills up like a carpet and tucked them under his arm. The door to the girl's bedroom was closed, but Maple Dorham, now moving with confidence, decided to squeeze himself under the door. It was uncomfortable, but he managed. The head of the lollipop was too big to take with him. He didn't think there would be anything to find there, but he was as wrong as he had ever been. The city's constellation of window lamps provided enough light for him to see that he'd stepped foot right into a dollhouse. There were three dolls in the open-faced home. Like a mini version of the family, there was a man, a woman, and a little girl. When he looked at the woman, he blushed. Even though she was a mannequin, she was attractive and just the right height. He took her by the hands and sang her a little tune he'd learned on the circus tour from a woman with three heads. Her stage name was Do Re Mi. Of course, she sang it to him with the harmonies of an alto, a mezzo-soprano, and a true soprano. Mapledorm spun the doll around and ended with a dip on the last note of the song. And he kissed her. It was the first one he ever gave anyone. Mapledorm wiped a few tears from his face, walked her over to the couch, and positioned her comfortably. As for the man, things weren't going to be so sweet. Mapledorm shoved him to the ground and took off his clothes. He pulled on a pair of gray trousers and slipped into a blue work shirt. The hat didn't fit, but he felt they restricted free thinking anyway. About to be on his way with a romantic lightness to his footsteps, he suddenly felt a blanket of danger around him. He looked around on high alert. Maple Dorham thought he was being watched. He breathed a little sigh of relief when, in a dark corner of the girl's room, meaning the large room, he saw a lineup of stuffed animals, their eyes with little sparkles of refracted light. As he bid them adieu, one of them blinked. Maple Dorm stiffened into an awkward pose, trying to fit in with the rest of the members of the dollhouse. It was the family cat. It was real, fluffy, and predatory. During his days on the tour, he'd been around lions, lionesses, tigers, and tigresses, but they were tamed by his fellow world travelers. They weren't anything like the domestic beast in front of him. The house cat pounced, and the dollhouse became a bouncy house. Maple Dorm jumped into the bathroom and picked up the mini clawfoot bathtub to protect himself from the foot claws of the cat. In a panic, he threw the bathtub at the feline demon. It bought him just enough time to climb upstairs to the little girl's little bedroom. The cat hissed, and in his brand new pants, Maple Dorm pissed. The cat swiped right into the little bedroom, tore through his shirt, and lacerated his skin. So much for the aspirations of being a fashion darling. Mapledorm rolled like a log under the bed for protection, but he got caught up in the curtain that he inadvertently pulled off the wall. 
It bound his arms to his sides. The cat aimed its yellow eyes at him like the high beams on the front of a furry locomotive. His life flashed before him and the cat lashed after him. He closed his eyes and imagined the tear in the indigo sky at the beginning of his life and the primal tears into the fabric of his skin. And then he thought of his mother. He internalized the struggles of the diminutive damsel in distress, both on the tracks of the model train set and the parallel lines of their parallel life stories. He was not going to let the trinket lineage end this way. Mapledorm's veins caught fire and he broke free from the curtain. He picked up the bed and took a home run swing that caught the cat's paws. The cat retracted. He continued his attack, raging through the house, upending tables and finding weapons to launch at the beast. If only he had his lollipop, he thought. He threw the icebox and nicked one of the cat's marbles. He tugged a handful of whiskers from its face, and then he hurled a grandfather clock that clocked the cat a few seconds back. Mapledorm was about to make his escape, but the cat made one last lunge. With its fangs out and a gust of cat food breath, he had no other choice but to sacrifice the little girl. Mapledorm shoved the little doll into the cat's mouth and ran for freedom. As he squeezed himself under the door, the cat got in a few more vicious swipes. In the hallway of safety, any feelings of guilt he imagined he'd have about being a thief were replaced by elation and the thrill of survival. But there was one problem. The money was still inside the room on the living room floor of the dollhouse. With the cat still pawing at the door, looking for another round, Mapledorm decided to cut his losses. He knew right then and there that this was not the way he was going to live his life. He welled up and shed more tears, partly on account of his allergy to the feline's dander. With tattered, blood-stained, and urine-infused clothes, he dragged the head of his lollipop across the floor before slinging it over his shoulder. Mapledorum was utterly bummed. As for the lollipop, it was the most depressing experience a piece of candy has ever had. Mapledorum chuckled in spurts over the sounds of his sobbing when he realized that a professional cat burglar he would not become. As he was leaving through the window, he heard the apartment door open and the little girl walk inside with her neighboring friend. They were there to feed the cat and retrieve her dolls for the sleepover. Mapledorum was sure she'd have some complaints about the new interior decorating in her dollhouse. It had been one of his jobs, after all, and thankfully for him, the cat would still have his appetite. This wasn't a life lesson, this was a death lesson. Mapledorum walked the midnight streets of New York City and looked for a place to stay. Along the way, he was harassed by several creatures of the night. He'd reached an adir, so he had little issue using his weapon to knock out a mouse with one swing, stun a spricket's antenna, or joust a wayward gerbil. Eventually, he happened upon an ignored basement near Pennsylvania Station. Mapledorm found a way in and slept in a cozy depression in the old cold floor, furthering his descent. After a month of Sundays and Vanta Black Nights, Mapledorm was growing tired of his rodent bedfellows. He even befriended one of them who was missing an eye and a leg, still drawn to the curiosities of the planet. But after a night when he saw what the rat dragged in, which was the carcass of the cat he'd recently battled, no doubt kicked to the curb by the family after it destroyed the home within their home, he rose from the bed and hit the road. He held the lollipop stick over his shoulder. Hanging from the end of the stick 
were his few belongings and two days of literal junk food tied up in the wrapper. It took him a long time to lick that lolly clean from the stick, even though he always did. He didn't like to waste anything except time. This was about the change, however. So tired he'd become of watching his life move in the opposite direction of his past ambitions. He'd always been a climber, a showman, a small and wondrous attraction. Chapter 4, Mississippi I swing big with everything I've got. I hit big or I miss big. I like to live as big as I can. George Herman, Babe Ruth Christmas Eve morning, 1929, Herald Square Park, Manhattan. In the present tense, Maple Dorham is taking a walk toward a pretense. He sees a sign. Blind palm readings. The truth lies in contradiction's bed. The majestic and mystical Miss Missy Mississippi. Nonsense is the only sense. He remembers her from the circus tour. Maple Dorham also knows she isn't actually blind. She was said to have an unusual case of ocular dysmorphia. If she were to take off the seven pairs of glasses she wears at a time, her vision will be nearly supreme. Miss Mississippi believes that it's easier to see into the future only if one cannot see what is right in front of them. Her reasoning is not incorrect, for to see what is in front of you, you can only look into the past. For example, the nanosecond that it takes for the light to reflect off the palm of your hand and reach your eyes still counts on the universal clock. As a rule of physics, the speed of light takes time. Even in the now, you're really seeing your hands in the very recent past. Since Miss Mississippi can't see them at all, she's taken one of the possible ways of seeing out of the equation. By her logic, what she will see when she's reading someone can only be the fleeting present or the eventual future. She knows that she'll either be in step or one step ahead. Miss Mississippi also wears seven pairs of gloves. Most people claim that she is making traditional palm reading a ruse. In this case, most people are correct. On the other hand, my apologies, the rest of the people claim that palm reading always has been a ruse. In this case, the rest of the people are not wrong. Nevertheless, she believes that if you actually touch something, you can't feel it. Try taking that one on as a philosophical dance partner. And if you complain to her about it, the southern belle won't hear anything of it. This is because she stuffs seven cotton balls into the pair of ears on her head. Miss Mississippi believes that if you hear someone speak, their language will disrupt the message they are trying to send. Miss Mississippi is a slippery character with banana peels for shoes. Despite all of this, Maple Dorham walks into her realm, a closet-sized storefront that seems to be holding up a large, crooked building. There are no candles, no ornamentation, and no wind chimes. There is simply a long table and two chairs. Miss Mississippi sits on one side, and Maple Dorham climbs up onto the chair opposite the mystic, who looks poised to perform an operation on a radioactive hyena. She says, Show me your palms. Maple Dorm keeps them on his lap, directly over his fake pockets. Ah, yes, I see. I don't see. You're pretending to be shy, but you're the one who walked in here. Please, by all means, keep your hands on your lap. Maple Dorm stands up and places his hands on the table, palms up. 
defiant, and skeptical you are. Hmm, you must be someone who has traveled a great distance to be here. Mapledorm arches an eyebrow like an inchworm arches its back. You never thought I'm the real deal, did you? Mapledorm looks over his shoulder. Don't worry, there's no one else here. Hmm, that's the problem, isn't it? You're not looking for your future. You're looking for your now. Mapledorm nods his head in silence. Miss Mississippi senses the positive aura emitting from his mind. You know where you want to go, but you fear you'll get there alone. Mapledorm closes his eyes. You, my dear, are looking for love. Mapledorm opens his eyes, brings his palms toward himself, and studies the lines. His fingers relax, and he brings them together, forming a bowl. You won't find love by looking from above. You'll find love by holding it above everything else, including yourself. Maple Dorham, keeping his hands in a bowl shape, lifts them up in front of the warm indigo light emanating from the chandelier overhead. In between his pinky fingers is a gap, or as he sees it, a small tear in the atmosphere of his own creation. You see, your future lives in the presence of your first revelation from the past. Maple Dorham lets down the sky and holds it over his heart. I'm going to grant you one wish but it will only come true if you don't believe it will. Mapledora makes his wish in a quiet thunderclap of thought. He tries to remain incredulous, literally hoping against hope. But I can't do everything myself. There is something you must do. You'll know what it is when it is not there. Miss Mississippi performs an incantation with balletic and parabolic gestures. While riding in the air with her well-gloved finger, she says, Absideth, gauge, clem, not, quirse, tube, wix, wise. Maple Dorham, upon hearing such silliness, loses all hope and faith that there is any merit to this charade. Miss Mississippi isn't done. She says the spell again as one phonetically cohesive word. Absideth, gauge, clem, not, quirse, tube, wix, wise. Her finger writes in the warm atmosphere with urgency before her improvised pen points at her lips, and then at her heart. Maple Dorham, as if possessed by an unseen force, also points to his heart. He realizes it's not so much beating, but vibrating. It feels as if it's growing inside him and trying to expand his ribcage. If you're wondering what that was, which you are, I'll tell you. It's something you've known for as long as you can recall. It's the alphabet, said as one word. Mapledorm tries to say the first ten letters in his head and gives up quickly. She continues, again reciting the alphabet as one word. Absidif Gajklem Nap Quirstuvwixwise. It represents the origin of all words and the infinite possibilities thereafter. It means anything you want it to be, and it means everything you wish it wasn't. But the word's first order of responsibility is to hold love within it and to keep it safe. Why else would it keep love guarded with such a militarized structure and symmetry? It has four letters on each end to protect E and V from an outside attack. A, B, C, D to the west, Z, Y, X, W to the east. Then it built a fortress of six letters between the next two, F, G, H, I, J, K, before you can get to L, U, T, S, R, Q, P, 
before you can get to O. And just for good measure, it stuck MN between them, like three arches of support. It even keeps love out of order, as to further veil its importance. As if a perfume bottle with a visible fragrance appears above the table, Mapledorum sees the word in the midst of the mist. Miss Mississippi finishes her thoughts by saying, The language of love is the presence of all the possible beautiful things you can write and say to someone you care for. The wingspan of Mapledorum's attention is wider than all the birds in the sky. She says sternly, Now leave this place. Go and find beauty in rainbows. Mapledorum doesn't move. He's flying high in thought. She raises her voice, and it jostles Mapledorum's serenity. I don't mean next week, I mean now. Go and find beauty in rainbows. She senses he's put his hands back on the table, leaving his heart vulnerable, which is the safest place for it. She continues, Now listen, I'm going to take off my glasses one pair at a time, and if I see you, I will know you aren't really here in this profound moment. If I don't see you, I will know you are exactly where you're supposed to be. And with that, Mabel Dorham dashed to Pennsylvania Station, and the train dashed to the east. Definition of the word spelled A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y Z. Pronunciation: Absidif Gajklem Not Course Two Wixwise. Noun: The genesis and protector of all love. Chapter Five. The Lap Magician. You are extraordinary within your limits, but your limits are extraordinary. Gertrude Stein. Christmas Eve evening, 1929, Long Island, New York. On the train, Maple Dorm is watching the patches of oaks, elms, and firs fly by like the pages of a flipbook. The trees look happy, and then he watches the maples blur by, the reflection of himself in the window included and they look like they feel sappy. He watches suburbia rise and fall in between stations. He reads the signs of businesses pitching vacations. He's looking for a rainbow, but it's one of those dry days where the clouds are hiding from sun rays. He's looking for something beautiful. He's looking for what's beyond the newest tear in the fabric sphere. Maple Dorham's improvised seat on the windowsill is uncomfortable, so he prays, crosses his legs, and hopes to lie but he's afraid he'll slip off and land on the seat below. A bed of feathers it is not. He uncrosses his legs and curses their existence. He resigns to recline, using his neck as his pillow. Mapledorm watches the Long Island landscape in shorter waves. While he starts to drift off, he thinks that maybe this is all wrong. Mapledorm's eyes blink open like a nervous oyster, shy about revealing the pearl within. He sees something that captures his attention. There's a string of businesses similar to the ones he'd see on a city avenue, but they're missing the stories of apartments above them. The signs are in a row, but they're not in alignment. They're more like uneven bricks with different typefaces. Psychic readings reads the first one. The beauty mark, the second one. Supposedly in rainbows, the third, and... Photographic Memories, the last one. And right there in the middle, Maple Dorm discovers the three words he is meant to find, beauty in rainbows. 
He whispers them in sounds never before seen. The train is rumbling to a stop. The name of the town on the station house is St. James. He hops down to the seat and then to the floor before taking to his heels and toes to get off the train in time. While three of the stores are self-explanatory, he's wondering about the one that isn't. Mapledorm approaches the front door and learns it's a restaurant. It's closed until dinner time. He reads the menu that's posted in the window. None of the dishes are listed. Mapledorm has never seen something like this before. He's intrigued because it's both an oddity and a curiosity, and when he realizes that's exactly what's motivating his interest, he sees that he's no different than anyone else. This is comforting and disturbing at the same time. This is what Mapledorm sees posted in the window. Bill of fare. Unique five-course dinners served nightly. The cuisine is dependent upon the availability of the delectable and seasonal options offered by Mother Earth, curated purely at the whim of the chef. Whims and whimpers from the patrons are not permitted. Roll the dice. Choose not to choose. We hope you come in and enjoy the unexpected. One dollar. Mapledorm's eyes become as wide as the double zeros in the price. He'd never seen something so outrageously expensive. He believes he must have gotten off at the most frivolous town in the country. Then he wonders how divine the food must taste. Mapledorm sees an alleyway between beauty and rainbows, just wide enough for him to slip through. In the back, amongst the other cars in a parking lot, he sees a 1921 Ford Model T that's been left to rust in peace. He climbs up the suspension and wiggles into a hole in the door that had rotted out. Home sweet and mobile home. He sprawls out on the seat and watches the full moon set over the black rainbow of the steering wheel horizon. Mapledorm thinks about the specificity of Miss Mississippi's insistence that he go and find beauty in rainbows. Not only did he physically go in between them, but it's how he found his new dwelling. His hunch is that his wish will be granted in the restaurant rather than the beauty shop, since the emphasis of the phrase seems to lie in rainbows more than it may in beauty. Rainbows are objective to the eye, but subjective to the heart. Beauty is the other way around. In any case, he remembers that it will only happen if he doesn't believe in it. He wonders how this paradoxical notion will play out, but he's been writing a script in his head with block letters. Then his eyelids flutter like a fly in butter until his winged lashes become parenthetical dashes. Mapledorum rests very well. Christmas Day at Night, 1929, Long Island, New York The next evening, Mapledorum is surprised to learn they are open on a day usually reserved for chimney mythology. He conspires to sneak into the restaurant. When all is quiet in the parking lot, he hides under a few leaves near the back door, waiting for the last member of the staff to leave. He presumes it will be the chef. So when he sees a toke poke outside, he gets ready to leap. The chef stands against the open door, which helps him remain vertical. He inhales the cool air. It's his first breath not infused with olive oil and oven flames. Then the chef exhales a sigh, wipes his brow of grease, and looks up to the sky. Mapledorum takes the chef's moment of serenity for his moment of opportunity. He's in. Not a champagne bottle pop later, the chef closes the door and locks it with a jangling set of keys. It's quiet and dark, save for the pilot flames, 
and the magic of bending moonbeams winding in through the windows. Mabeldorm thinks it's a small restaurant for a menu with such grand ambitions. He counts eight seats at the L-shaped bar. The place is spotless, save for the Lincoln penny he finds next to the leg of a bar stool. He picks it up, puts it behind his back, and tucks it into his pants. It gave him chills up and against his spine. Even though the law prohibits the sale of alcohol, the chef keeps a stash hidden from the nightstick brigade. The chef serves it to discerning guests in teacups with a wink and a finger across his lips. In the kitchen, Maple Dorm finds several apple pies set to cool overnight. He convinces himself that no one else will notice if he takes a little corner of this circular dream. He turns his penny into a plate and starts to literally dig in. He scoops out a small piece of apple, a few handfuls of the filling, and a small section of the basket weaving. He sits down on the counter and takes his first bite. The dream becomes lucid. His tongue swirls in cinnamon. He has a conversation with Johnny Appleseed. He tastes the deep amber notes of syrup and the blood of maple trees. Not surprisingly, maple is his favorite flavor. He savors hints of brown sugared figs, confectionery peanut butter, caramel bourbon, cocoa dusted dates, gingered marshmallows, and salted vanilla beans soaked in Sunday afternoons. He exhales and he rubs his chin as an ellipsis of spiced watermelon lingers for three hiccups. Mapledorm licks his plate clean, becoming more intimate with Honest Abe than he would ever have expected. So enthralled he is by the experience, he looks for anything else he can try. Everything else is kept behind locked doors. He tries them all. About to give up, he bumps into a basket of the discarded linen napkins. After being used to wipe the corners of a mouth or veil an uneaten bite, each patron's napkin is tossed into the bucket by the busboy. The basket would be sent out to be laundered the next morning. Mapledorm dives in and unfolds large canvases with brushstrokes flavored with mutton chops and apricot sauce, chicken breasts breaded with blueberries, sweet pepper soup stirred with an agave leaf, steak tartare capered with swinging jazz notes, and strawberry cheesecake topped with a Twizzler candle. He feels a bit iffy and icky about it, but no one is looking, so he has leftovers for dinner. He puts his tongue to the accidental artistry and enjoys a five-star, five-lick meal fit for Long Island royalty. He isn't necessarily full, but he's satiated. He continues this routine every night. The chef leaves. Maple Dorm jumps out from the leaves. He has plenty of water, a mosaic of napkins, and occasionally some booze. He looks forward to the nights when the pies and pastries are left out to cool. But the best nights are when the chef drinks too much and forgets to put away an experimental dish. These are the nights when the elasticity of his clothes is tested. It makes tucking the copper plate into his pants a tighter squeeze. He also notices that the size of his heart has yet to subside since he visited Miss Missy, Mississippi. After his midnight dinners, Maple Dorm cleans the hard-to-reach areas in the kitchen. He figures it's the least he can do. One night, after scrubbing the top shelf of the spice rack, he feels entitled to drink some of the moonshine on the top shelf behind the bar. It's labeled XXX, each diagonal cross representing how many times it was distilled. This also entitles him to a hangover. When he hears the chef open the door with the melody of the morning, Maple Dorham wakes up in a sleeping bag of paper napkins. The chef is singing When You're Smiling, the latest song by Louis Armstrong.
Mapledorum isn't smiling, he's panicking. He makes his bed by taking it with him and hiding behind a recessed area by the bar sink. There he stays throughout the entire evening of service. He listens to the asynchronous parade of footsteps as the customers come and go. He listens to the servers describe the nuances of each course, speaking in tongues and in the lingo of taste buds. Whatever it is, he's already fluent in the language. Mapledorum is emboldened by the experience, and since he survives undetected, he decides it's time to make the move from the Ford Model T to his secret place behind the bar. His new studio apartment has a bed of sponges, a bar rag comforter, and a steel wall couch. The living space is smaller than that of the sink, which also acts as a warm shower, a swimming pool, a hot tub, a dishwasher for his copper plate, and a laundry station. Mapledorm's access to the art of food, whether in forgotten morsels or impressionistically left on a linen napkin, is at an all-time high. The clothes he stole from the stiff gentleman in the dollhouse are now too small. One night, he takes one of the fresh linen napkins and brings it to the kitchen. He takes the smallest of the chef's knives and becomes a tailor until daybreak. Mapledorm uses red and white butcher string to sew each piece together. In the end, he has a collared shirt, pants, a vest, and even a pair of slippers. The suit has the spirit of the American pastime at the seams and a dapper bandleader's bop everywhere else. He is now Mapledorm Trinket, the gentleman who always wears a white linen suit. This gives him sartorial confidence for the first time in his life. He further thinks that he'd blend in well if he ever got caught swimming in the basket of dirty linens at night. If anything, he might be too clean to belong there, and he'd surely be spotted. It's a chance he's willing to take in the name of fashion. With his newfangled confidence, he gets more courageous when it comes to the palette of palatable Picassos. Instead of waiting until the end of the night, he wants to lift the napkins right from the laps of customers while they're still relying on them. He maps out a plan. The next night, he builds a small and nearly undetectable scaffolding under the overhang of the bar. He tests its fortitude by hanging and swinging on it like a set of monkey bars. His climbing muscles have kept their memory. He practices his technique of napery theft, swooping down like a gymnast on the uneven bars. Mapledorm sets up some napkins on the bar stools and swooshes them away, similar to the way a daring server might pull away a tablecloth while keeping the dishes in place. He believes the best approach is to grab the center of the napkin, creating a temporary and miniature big top tent, before whisking it away like a long cape trailing behind him. The scaffolding also serves as a way to keep the linen from falling and potentially appearing as a little ghost under a sheet haunting the bar. But Mapledorm is not a puny poltergeist, nor is he a pocket-sized pickpocket. Mapledorm's act is simply to make something appear to disappear. Instead of pretending to be the star of a radio show, now he is taking center stage in a magnificent theater. He's waiting in the wings while a man bellows over the crowd of a sold-out show. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to present our final display of talent for the evening. Please put your hands together for Mapledorm Trinket, the Lap Magician. So enthralled by his new venture, he decides to celebrate with a drink from the top shelf. He climbs up and tilts the XXX bottle into a thimble. As he positions the bottle back in place, he sees that there's also a label on the back, which is far more detailed than the front. What it says stings him more than the booze, 
like a beehive times a bazillion. It's a handwritten eulogy from a soul six feet under and boxed in pine. The author is both unknown and curiously personal. It reads, The tulips are mounting an uprising from my grave. I'm looking up and watching their indigo roots right now. My photographic future was in the palm of the beholder. The mark of time was the psychic scar caused by the same hand which rests upon my shoulder. In my life, I eventually learned there was beauty in my needing. It provided the light for my readings. Memories no longer mark my tomorrow's lows. Supposedly, I dream in rainbows. But it's the tulips that will echo my short story, their narrative whispered in the bloom of their ephemeral glory. Thanks again for listening. If you want to learn more about me, please go to my website at lewislasserthefourth.com. That's L-O-U-I-S-L-A-S-S-E-R-I-V.com. There you'll find my bookshop, social links, and more. Until next time, see you later.